Our text this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 4. So why don't you turn and follow with me as I read. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 658. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make thy name known to thy adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains quaked at thy presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. One of the delights of this summer that is now drawing to a close with this Labor Day weekend for me was that my two-year-old son Abraham became a preacher this summer. I came up from downstairs a few months back with one of those morning verses that I like to wake up the family with. And it was Psalm 20, verse 7, and I announced like a general to his army, this is going to be the banner over this family now, you ready? Some boast of chariots, some of horses, but we boast of the name of the Lord our God. Okay? All right. From that point on, Abraham has become a preacher, and he gets up on this little uh, stool in the kitchen, and he goes like this. We not trust in horses. We not trust in chariots. We trust in the Lord our God. (laughs) And he made my summer. And what I want to talk about this morning is why every family and every person ought to hang the banner over their front door. We not trust in horses. We not trust in chariots. We trust in the Lord our God. The reason is given in Isaiah 64, 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. The reason we shouldn't trust in horses or chariots But in the Lord our God is because God works for people like that. And if God is working for you, then surely things are going to go better than if everybody else in the universe is working for you, but not God. So I think it's a great thing to think about on this Labor Day Sunday. Let's lift up the Lord and enjoy him this morning, especially in this meal in a few moments, as the Lord who labors on our behalf. Now, I suppose on Labor Day that if everything we needed in life were accomplished by our labor, we could take tomorrow and set it aside as a day in which we celebrated us. And the privilege to work, which it is. But isn't it true? I think everybody admits that the things we need most in life, we don't achieve by our own labor. Did we labor to create our life and breath? 
Did we make our eyes so that we could enjoy the sight of one another this morning and each other's faces and our children and the sky and the lightning? Did we invent or create or labor to make our nose by which we smell and our mouth by which we taste or our wives or our husbands or our friends who bring so much delight into our lives? Did we supply the earth with water for drinking and for the crops? Did we make the sun and station it at just the right distance so it holds the earth just where it needs to be, warms us, tans our skin, feeds our crops and makes them grow? Did we surround the earth with air to carry the clouds and the birds to bring oxygen into our lungs? Did we make sunrises and sunsets that never cease but go on around the globe without ceasing all day long, every day, bringing joy to people after people from one meridian to the other? And when we come to die, will it be owing to our labor that a holy and just God can acquit us from all our sins, take away pain, guilt, Fear, give us new resurrection bodies forever in the age to come. Will it be owing to our labor that any of these most precious of all things come our way? No, it's all owing to God's labor. And so as Labor Day approaches, I want us to delight in the God who loves to work and labor for those who wait for him. And there are three things about this work that God does for us that I want us to think about briefly. First, it's uniqueness. Second, it's competence. And third, it's condition. And those three things are right here in our text, Isaiah 64, 4. So let's look at them one at a time. The prophet says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. No eye or ear has ever heard or seen such a thing. This is utterly unique that God, the creator, should work on behalf of his creatures. Now, the way Isaiah brings this home in a few other places, for example, in Isaiah 46, 1 to 4, he contrasts Jehovah, the God of Israel, with Baal and Nebo. Baal and Nebo are the uh, Mercury and the Jupiter, the gods of Babylon. And he points out that Baal and Nebo have these images, and the images are crumbling and falling, and the gods can't do anything to lift them up, but rather they have to be carried on carts with cattle. Whereas Jehovah, the creator, carries his people. Listen to this beautiful text. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and cattle. These things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. But... Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry. I will save. 
What a beautiful contrast to all the other gods who have to be supported and served by their subjects, whereas God goes under and serves, supports, and carries his people. What sets Jehovah apart from all the other gods and makes him utterly unique is that he doesn't need to be carried. He does the carrying in our lives to our gray head and our grave and through the grave. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is marked by this great truth. He magnifies his greatness by condescending to service. Says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, he exalts himself to show mercy. Isn't that a beautiful idea? God aims to be an utterly unique, wonderful, magnificent God. And the way he aims to be that kind of God is to subordinate himself, as it were. To serve his people for their good. And therefore, no eye has seen the likes of such a God. It is without parallel anywhere that the creator should come down and serve the creature. That's the first thing. It is unique that God should serve those whom he has made. Second, let's consider for a moment the competence of this work. We've all had work done for us by workmen. Um, last summer, I had work done for me so that there would be water running away from my back door instead of running into the basement, to the back door. So they landscaped it. And they did it wrong. Twice they had to come back. And a third time. And I'm not sure yet whether when I go home this morning there may not be water in the basement. And just two weeks ago I took my car to a service station because I couldn't get it into first gear. And 78 smackolas... And it still doesn't work right. So all of us have had experience where you need a workman. You need a service. And you are let down. It is radically and totally otherwise with God. Because God is not lacking in any of the things that cause workmen to fail us. He's not lacking in concern, like some workmen are, for the reputation of their firm. Some workmen don't care, evidently, that you think their firm must be lousy because of what a lousy job they do. He's not lacking in knowledge. Some workmen can't do a good job because they don't understand how the thing works. And he's not lacking in strength. Some work doesn't get done because the workers peter out. They don't have enough stick to or endurance. But it's totally different when it comes to God. God's motivation, that is, his concern to honor his name and make sure he doesn't get the reputation of a bumbler is infinite. And God's knowledge of how everything works is infinite. And God's strength and endurance is infinite. And therefore, God can't fail when he engages to work for us. And that is the greatest thing in all the world. Isaiah 46, 9 puts it like this. I am God 
There is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, when God says he's going to work for those who wait for him. He can't fail. He is totally competent and what he undertakes to do, he succeeds in doing the services he supplies succeed. Philippians 419. I'm sure the favorite text of many in here says, my God will supply all your needs. If he landscapes, if he works on a transmission, it works. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ. To God be glory forever and ever. So, we've seen that his work is unique and we've seen that it is utterly competent and reliable. And now finally, what's the condition of this work? For whom does God do this kind of work? That's the big question for us. In one sense, God works for everybody. He makes that sun rise on the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the good and the evil. He brings seed time and harvest even for his rebellious creatures. God does work for all his creatures. And all of this is meant to lead us to repentance. But in our text, the work referred to is not that common grace given to all but a special grace that is given to those who have a certain disposition. No eye has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait, who wait for him. The work mentioned here clearly is not just the work of creation and preservation. It's not just the meeting of a few natural needs that he does for everybody, Rather, it's the investment of all God's infinite sovereign power to do everything his people need to have done for their good. And for whom does he do it? He does it for those who wait for him. So the biggest question for us right now is, what's that? How do you do that? And I want to try to show you from Isaiah how you wait for the Lord here in closing. The people to whom Isaiah is talking are in trouble. They're in danger from enemies, Assyrians once and then Babylonians. Now, the danger that God sees is not so much the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but the temptation to run to Egypt for help instead of to God. Instead of waiting for God's help, he sees the temptation looming large that they're going to go after human help. And so he says in Isaiah 31, 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many or in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So the first thing that waiting on God means is 
Before you make one peep of an effort to solve your own problem or hire a human agency, pray. Seek the counsel of God. What is his way to solve this problem and bring you out of trouble? It says in Psalm 106, 13, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. The first act of waiting, therefore, is prayer. Before we make one little move to solve our problem. And I know if you're like me, you've come through many efforts. And an hour into it, you say, I forgot to pray. And we need to work to form the habit of stopping again and again and again. That's what Paul means, I think, when he says pray without ceasing before you do anything. At every little occasion of your life, every interview, every encounter, whisper a prayer. How would it go if I relied on you? What do you want me to do? And then do what the Lord says. We are like patients. Prayer is like getting on the phone and calling up your doctor and saying, I'm in trouble. There's this pain. What should I do about it? Before you gulp down any medicine or start doing jumping jacks, call the doctor. Now, the doctor might tell you, lie down. Don't do anything. Or he might tell you, take the pill, do your exercises. Now, those two instructions from the Lord involve us in two different forms of waiting. We don't stop waiting once we've called. We wait. There is a waiting of two different sorts. Let's look at them just one at a time here. The first one is if the doctor says lie down. Isaiah 30 verse 15 goes like this. God says to the people, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you would not. You said, no, we will speed upon horses. And therefore you shall speed away. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds. And therefore your pursuers shall be swift. In other words, God was saying on the phone, uh, just sit down. And I'm going to work for you. Take it easy and rest and I'll be your strength. But they wouldn't do it. They wanted to maneuver their own victory for their own glory on horses and chariots. Sometimes we have to be willing on the phone to accept the frustrating news. Be still. We need to hear what Moses said to the people as they were about to cross the Red Sea. Fear not. Stand firm and behold the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. So the second thing that waiting for the Lord means is after you've prayed to the doctor and he says, be still. Be still. And rest. But there's a third way to wait for the Lord. And that is, he might say, get up, do your exercises and take your pill. 
Or to bring it back into the Old Testament context, he might say, go into battle and fight. Uh, in my family, we've been reading Second Samuel for devotions in the morning. And uh, just a few days ago, we read Second Samuel 5.19. Now, the situation is that David has just taken over after Saul's death and the Philistines are besieging. And here's what he does. David inquired of the Lord. He waited. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Wilt thou give them into my hand? Wait. Answer. And the Lord said to David, go up. For I shall surely give them into your hands. So the word to David was not lie still. The word to David was fight. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He waited. But now here is here's the essence. Now get this carefully. Because we're so prone to think that waiting means stillness. But as soon as we start acting, preparing a sermon, a lesson, going to work, preparing a report, staying up late, work, work, work. We don't have to wait anymore. That's not the case because, and this changes all of life, there is a spirit of waiting in the midst of work. Proverbs 21.31 says this, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You see the implication of that for the warrior? It means that when the Lord says go, he doesn't stop waiting. He carries with him into battle a spirit of expectancy, a sense that, yes, I will fight with all my might, but I must wait on the one in whose hands alone is the victory. So that no matter how hard you work, there's a spirit of waiting, a spirit of expectancy, a spirit that out of and through all this activity is going to come lightning from heaven to do supernatural work. Here's the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 33:16. A king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a vain hope for victory and by its great might it cannot save. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Yea, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let thy steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in thee. If the Lord instructs us to take certain precautions, like locking the door at night, don't think that you can stop waiting on the Lord. For the psalm says, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord watches over the city, those who stay awake, stay awake in vain. Even when we are watchmen doing our duty, we must be waiting for the Lord, for he alone brings safety. So the third form of waiting is even when the Lord says act, we act with a spirit of reliance on his work and we wait for the Lord in a spirit of expectancy that even though our labor is vulnerable and paltry, the final result of all we do lies in the hands of the Lord. And on that, we wait in all our work. 
So, in conclusion, those three things, let me sum them up again. When circumstances conspire to put you under pressure so that you feel something's got to be done, something's got to be done for safety or something's got to be done for service, wait for the Lord. That is, pray. Before you do anything else, seek the Lord. Seek His counsel. What would He have you do, if anything? Second, if the Lord says... Sit down and put your feet up. If the Lord says, don't go to church tonight to be at the council meeting, stay home and pray. I will work better than your arguments. Stay home. And if the Lord says, go and argue with all your might, don't become self-reliant, but go. And let me stress in regard to that second point that I don't mean laziness or the shirking of duty. I mean the very frustrating experience that sometimes when you're most prepared, when you think most relies on you and your zeal is fired, the Lord may say to you, you just stay home tonight and watch me work. And you're so frustrated because you had it all planned. But he wants to work for you so that he gets the glory and not us. So whether we lie still and sit or whether we work, let us have this in common that we wait for the Lord, that we have a spirit of expectancy that no matter how paltry our labors are, the final issue is in the hands of the Lord and he loves to work for those who wait for him.